This is the word of the Lord from 1 Thessalonians. Additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God as you are doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these offenses, as we also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you join with me in prayer? And just real quickly before we do so, I know that you know when addressing a subject like sexual immorality, like we're talking about today, uh, some of you as parents uh, have kids in here, and uh, I, my commitment is never to be graphic or gratuitous, but I'm going to uh, boldly teach what the scripture teaches. And for those of you who are adults who have the maturity level of kids, just get it under control here, Okay. We need to talk about this because this is a very important subject matter, uh, biblically important subject matter, culturally important subject matter, personally. So let's join our hearts together in prayer as we talk about how to honor God with our sexuality. Lord, uh, I thank you for your word. I thank you that uh, at this church we love to just go through books of the Bible and let your word dictate what it is that we will be talking about and speaking about and teaching about. Lord, I thank you. God, for uh, the gift that is your word, and I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to bring our lives into light of your word. And so, God, I ask for myself today, God, you'd help me to teach only that which is in line with the truth of your word. And God, I pray for each and every single one of us to have soft hearts, teachable hearts that are shaped by your word. And God, would you help us to experience more of your goodness and grace together today as a result of our time. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. All right, let's dive right in. I'm going to let the passage lead us where we want to go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. It says, additionally then, brothers and sisters. And by the way, the additionally then is in some of your translations, it says, finally. So what that is, is that's a signal word letting us know that the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy who are writing with him, they're kind of done with the foundation setting and they're now transitioning to a new section of this letter where it goes from kind of the big picture concepts to practical matters. Also, I like that it says, finally, and then there are two more chapters of a five-chapter book being written. That's 40% if you're doing the math at home. It's like, you know what it means when a preacher says, finally? Nothing, absolutely nothing. So uh, I'm on solid biblical ground here. So finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus. This is absolutely crucial for you to understand that what is about to be taught, what is about to be instructed are for those who are in 
Christ Jesus. Even as we just witnessed this baptism and this beautiful portrait of being united to Christ in faith, in Christ Jesus means you have recognized that you are sinful, that you need a savior, that you have repented of your sin. You have trusted in Jesus. You have believed in his death and his resurrection. And you have said, I'm pushing all my chips into the center of the table. I'm going all in on King Jesus. He is my all in all. Quick show of hands of you here today. How many of you are in Christ Jesus? Okay, then these instructions are for you. And it's also important to note that these instructions are not for those who are not in Christ Jesus. This is for Christians. We're going to talk more about this as we go, but this is a really important interpretive step. For those of you in the Lord Jesus, that just as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and and please God, and, and by the way, you're doing this, right? He says, we've taught you how to live to please God, and you're doing a good job Do this even more. How many of you can say, and and this is not a trick question, how many of you can say, yeah, in general, I feel like I'm I'm following Jesus. I'm doing an okay job. I'm doing an all right job following Jesus. It's not a trick question. Now, how many of you can say, this is a trick question, how many of you can say, I couldn't be doing any better. I have no room to grow whatsoever. We all are a work in progress. We all are in this ongoing process of sanctification. So he says, you're doing it, but let's do it even more. Let's press in more to living lives to please God. For you know what commands we already gave you through the Lord Jesus. We've already taught you these things. This is reminder. This is not brand new. This is reminder. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality. First thing out of the gate. When Paul and Silas and Timothy want to give instructions to the church, the first thing out of the gate, finally, we've built this whole foundation. We're going to remind you of some things we want to teach you. Here it is. Sexual immorality. Now, if you're like me, maybe you have non-Christians in your life, and maybe you hear a little bit of this, this kind of objection that comes, oh, there it is. I knew it. There those Christians go again, just always talking about sex always worried about what other people are doing with their bodies, always meddling in things that have nothing to do with them. Why can't Christians just chill out, live, let live, just stop worrying about what other people do with their, in their own private lives? Why are Christians so obsessed with what happens in the bedroom? Anybody heard objections like this from people you know or read things? This is, a, this is something I've had personal direct conversations with people about. Now, the Apostle Paul and his companions write this Because they're writing to a group of followers of Jesus who lived in a culture that was steeped, steeped in sexuality. You're going to have to really stretch your imagination to think about what it would be like to live in a culture that just had sex everywhere, okay? I mean, really, stretch your imagination. By the way... um, I did not plan this on purpose when we put together this teaching series. I did not realize that this passage would line up with the first Sunday after what has now become a new American holiday, an entire month called Pride, in which we are uh, encouraged to celebrate forms of sexuality that run contrary to the teaching of God's word. And when you say, when I say things like a culture steeped in sexuality, my phone buzzed 
because I have a public calendars, just public holidays on whatever that was, Thursday, my phone buzzed and let me know through no decision of my own that it's now the first day of Pride Month. And then we went to um, a minor league baseball game the other day with my kids. And we walk in and there's a United States flag, there's a Seattle Mariners flag, and there is a Pride flag. The only other flag besides we all live in the U.S., we're all at a baseball game, the third thing on the list was celebrations of alternative forms of sexual expression. I got an email from one of my kids' schools inviting me to a pride-themed roller skating night. Uh, I got a, I turned on the TV and a company is trying to sell me, they want me to buy their beer and they do that by having really beautiful people in various states of undress drinking their beer. And I know, I actually have first-hand experience to know that I will not be as thin and attractive as them if I drink that beer, okay? Everywhere I go, everywhere I go, everywhere you go, the water that we swim in, the air that we breathe, is pervaded by a celebration of sexuality in a way that says anything that feels good, do it. Anything that comes from within you, you should embrace it and you should Find a way to express yourself in this way. So again, you're going to have to imagine a culture that had religious level devotion to sexual pleasure. And actually, before I unpack this passage, I want to briefly just do a little bit of Mythbusters because there are two myths that I commonly hear, both from those who are not followers of Jesus, but actually, sadly, sometimes within the church, within those who are part of the family of God. The first, first myth is this. The first myth is the Bible is anti-sex. And actually, maybe therefore by extension, God himself is anti-sex. I have two truths I would like to set before you. The first truth is a sad truth, which is there has been a long history of misinterpretation that actually goes all the way back to the days of the Apostle Paul. You don't have to look to 1950s-style fundamentalism You can actually look all the way back in church history. There are early church writings in the 300s, the 400s, where they would interpret the sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden. What is it? What is the eating of the forbidden fruit? Well, they say that's a metaphor for having sex, that Adam and Eve shouldn't have even had sex in the first place, that that is the sin that got them kicked out of the garden. In fact, you can read other letters that the Apostle Paul wrote where he talks about people who were going around. He talks about, in, uh, in, in Colossians chapter three, he talks about people who uh, treat the body very severely. Paul says these people treat the body severely. They're trying to avoid sexual immorality, but they actually go so far as to like, you know, literally like beatings and floggings and whippings and things that that go far beyond God's intention for self-control. In 1 Timothy, a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, who's a co-author of this letter, he talks about these liars who forbid marriage. So apparently even in Paul's own day, there were some people who said sexual immorality is such a big deal that we just ought to get rid of the whole thing. Friends, the other truth that I want to set before you is that the Bible's portrayal of sexuality is that it is good, it is beautiful, it is created and invented by God himself, but that it must be handled carefully due to its potency. 
I remember I served with a pastor who, before he was a pastor, he worked in insurance. And he used the analogy of fire in, in, in home insurance. If you have fire in your fireplace, it's good. It's friendly fire. If you have fire in your stove, it's good. Can cook food, can provide light, can provide warmth. Fire is a very good thing, right? Fire is a very good thing. But when fire is, let's say, on your living room couch, it is no longer a good thing. In the insurance world, they call that unfriendly fire. See, the Bible's portrayal is that at the very beginning, God created man and woman, male and female, and the first command he gave to them, what's the first command that God gave to the man and the woman? Be fruitful and multiply. Some of y'all are doing great at that, okay? (laughs) Serve in kids' ministry, right? The idea being here that God says, I'm going to make the most pleasurable experience known to humankind, and through it, God shares his life-generating ability with us as image bearers. What a mind-blowing thought that is. Stop and think about that for a moment. The God who is life within himself creating image bearers and saying, I'm giving to you the responsibility to create new lives and I'm going to make it extremely pleasurable and extremely joyful. But God says it needs to be safeguarded because this is, this is powerful. This is like fire. There's a good way to utilize it and there's a way when it's mishandled, it creates great harm. By the way, if you don't think that the Bible portrays Uh, sex is good and beautiful, you need to read the Song of Songs, okay? But uh, in Jewish tradition, uh, young men were not allowed to read the Song of Songs until they were at least 30 years old. So young men, sorry, take a chill pill and go read Romans instead. Okay, myth number two, myth number two. And again, this is not just a myth that some people out there believe. It sadly creeps its way into the church. The myth is this. The Bible is inconsistent in what it teaches about sexual behavior. Some people will point to verses in the Old Testament and the New Testament that are are pretty just like cut and dry, pretty straightforward, saying things like same-sex sexual activity is outside of the will of God. The Bible's pretty clear about that. But then they'll point to other verses that say things about polygamy or a man having multiple wives. And, and, and critics will point to it and say, well, wait a minute, that's being inconsistent. If there's, this, if there's this ideal, why is the Bible pretty straightforward about one thing but pretty inconsistent about another thing? Well, let me offer you two responses. First of all, the first truth is that some people just don't know how to read a book, okay? Because the Bible sets an ideal and then tells stories about the devastation that happens when people deviate from the ideal. In my own current personal Bible reading plan, I am two chapters away from being done with 2 Samuel. I don't remember the last time you read the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel is the story of King David's rise to the throne at the beginning of 2 Samuel. It's like, man, he is God's anointed king. The one we've all wanted has come. I don't know why I've paid more attention to it, but... Some of you know that in 2 Samuel, there's this big story of David's massive, massive sin with Bathsheba. But the thing that I didn't maybe remember quite as clearly, and I'm picking up this time, David had a lot of wives, like a lot. And in fact, 
he actually has, in addition to all these wives, he has all these concubines, which are kind of like, it's tragic to say, it was like house servants that the king was allowed to sleep with when he wanted to. And at the end of 2 Samuel, and then you go into the books of First and Second Kings where Solomon, his son, it's like see and raised. And it leads to the disintegration of the kingdom of Israel. Civil war. I'm, I just finished reading the story of Absalom rising up against his father. And the Bible, yeah, the Bible says that David had multiple wives, but the Bible doesn't endorse it. In fact, the authors of the scripture go out of their way to show us the devastation that takes place when people deviate from God's ideal. That's the truth. And the second truth that goes along with this myth or this objection is, and this is going to be hard for some of you who are a little more legalistic, but you need to hear this to wrap your mind around the Bible. The Bible does contain many instructions that are accommodations for less than ideal situations. So yes, there are some verses people will point to like in Exodus or Deuteronomy that say, hey, if a guy has two wives, he can't love one and be really harsh and mistreat the other. And people are like, well, see, the Bible's endorsing polygamy. Oh, not so fast. Because the Bible teaches about all sorts of things that are not God's ideal. How many of you know life is just less than ideal in many ways? What does the Bible say about divorce? Are there biblical allowances for divorce? There absolutely are. Does that mean that it's God's ideal? By no means. Are there biblical allowances, you know, instructions and teachings about how to conduct warfare? Yeah. Does that mean that war is God's ideal? No. There are a lot of things in the Bible that where God meets us in our broken humanity and says, hey, this is messed up, but in the messed upness, here's some ways to honor God and to move in the direction of holiness. Jesus himself reinforced God's ideal. Sometimes we get ourselves into trouble when we start asking all sorts of questions like, well, what's allowed and what's, in, what's inbounds and what's out of bounds and can I do this and can I do that? I think the best thing that we can do is to listen to the words of Jesus when he upholds God's ideal. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, like tightly cling, wholeheartedly united to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but they are one flesh. And that one flesh union, yes, it refers to the sexual intimacy, but it it's even goes beyond that because it, it's like the idea of like a whole life, your flesh, your life, just who you are, the husband and the wife joining together the entirety of their lives, not just physically, but relationally, emotionally, spiritually, financially, all of the things that mean life. And Jesus says, therefore, what God has joined together, let not a man separate. This is God's vision for human sexuality. One man, one woman, covenanted, committed together in the bonds of marriage. And in that place, the freedom and the delight and the joy 
to be fruitful and multiply and to enjoy song of songs type delight. Amen? This is God's ideal. Now, all right, the temperature is getting warm in this room. Now, I want to get back to our passage here because the Apostle Paul says, I want to remind you of these things I've taught you. I want to compel you towards a life of greater sexual fidelity in a world that often practices sexuality in ways that are opposed to God's plan. And there are four things I want us to pull out. Four things I want us to see in this passage. And there are four things you need to know. Number one, you need to know God. Number two, you need to know yourself. Number three, you need to know how serious the stakes are, how serious the things we're talking about are. And then number four, you need to know what to do. I apologize right now. I'm already going to go longer than I should, but we're going to talk about all four of these things. Number one, knowing God. Go back to verse three. For this is God's will for your sanctification that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who, say it with me, who don't know God. Jumping down to verse eight, consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who gives you his holy spirit. There's a claim here that this is, this is not just Paul's opinion. This is not just some human opinion. At the end of the day, if you're a follower of Jesus, the thing that matters more than anyone else's opinion is what God says. And Paul sets up this contrast here. He says there are those who don't know God, and then there are those that do know God. And I want to say this from the outset. This sermon is for those of you who do know God. If there's anyone here who's visiting or listening online, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to listen in to our beliefs and our teaching. But for those of you who do know God, this is for you. And I'll say it this way. I want to make sure we hear this loud and clear. We should not be shocked or surprised or angry when people who do not know God live like people who do not know God. I will confess to you, I find a lot of frustration and a lot of anger at times in my own heart towards the culture that we live in and the world and the moment that we live in and the harmful, destructive effects that it has. But at the end of the day, what this passage is addressing is those who know God. And what does it mean to know God? How do we know God? Underneath that phrase, there are three things, there are three ways that we know God. The first way that we know God is we know God as our creator and king. God is the one who created the heavens and the earth by the word of his power. He made the sun, the moon, the stars. He made the oceans and the mountains. He made the dry land and the seas. He made the animals and the birds and the fish and the reptiles. And he made humankind. And because he is the creator, does he not have the right to say how things ought to operate? So here we come to God and we say, God, you're the one that made everything. You created everything. You get to say what is and isn't an appropriate usage of this gift of sexuality that you've made. There's lots of ways to use things that are out of line with their intended purpose. 
You can use your lawnmower as a paperweight. But that's not how the guy that thought up the lawnmower said, oh, this is how I'd like the lawnmower to be used. There's lots of ways to use human sexuality that are out of line with God's intended purpose. So we're motivated by respect. We come to God as king, creator. You're the Lord. You're the creator. You're the king. As my, as my father-in-law would say, you're the man. Like, that's what my father-in-law, my, my full-sleeve tattooed biker father-in-law. I was scared of him when I was a teenager. I'm not anymore. <laughs> now, I'm going to ask for any brave souls as a show of hands. How many of you can say that in your life, you have not always used God's good gift of sexuality in a way that is in line with his created purpose. Anyone here ever fallen short in this area? I can say that for myself. So we come to God as king and creator, and then we say, oh no, I've messed up. I've fallen short. And so then we come to know God as redeemer and savior. Because God saw us in our broken state. And God was not content to leave us there. God sent his son, the second person of the Trinity, to become the man Jesus Christ. And do you know what Jesus did? Jesus lived a life as a young man for 33 years on this earth in perfect obedience to his heavenly father. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tested and tempted in every way possible. And we know from the gospel narratives that Jesus had many crowds following him around. He was popular. And in fact, Jesus even went to parties where there were tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus was tempted sexually. And yet, in every case, perfectly obeyed the will of the Father. And Jesus... His life led him to a cross where he bled from his head and his hands and his side and his feet, paying the penalty for every single one of our misuses of God's gift of sexuality. And Jesus says that if we come to him, we can be completely forgiven because of his sacrifice on the cross, his perfect life, his perfect obedience, his perfect sacrifice. And you and I do not have to be defined by our sexual misconduct. We can be defined by the perfection and the purity of Jesus. But actually, I want to do you even one better because maybe for some of you, it's not your own sexual misdeeds, but it's been the misdeeds of others. Other people have misused this powerful, potent gift of sexuality. Our prisons are full of these people. Our counseling offices are full of these people. Uh, my, my work as a pastor, I have spent so much time sitting with people and talking with people and praying with people and crying with people whose lives have been obliterated and damaged and harmed by sexual misdeeds. And when Jesus died on the cross, his blood that poured out from his body is not only for the forgiveness of our misdeeds, but it is for the healing and the cleansing of the harms that have been done against us. 
And in the blood of Jesus Christ, there is washing and cleansing and healing. And Jesus, after he bled and after he died and after he was buried in the ground, guess what, friends? On the third day, he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead, offering new life today and eternal life in the future for those who will trust in him. And so now we come to God, not just as king, not just as the one whose standard we haven't lived up to. We're like, oh my gosh, I've failed. But now we come to God as our savior and our redeemer and we say, thank you. Thank you for the forgiveness. Thank you for the healing. How can I live my life in such a way as to say thank you, which is where God's Holy Spirit comes in, which Paul mentioned that now we've been given the Holy Spirit. And so we know God as teacher and guide, a teacher who helps us to think rightly. Yeah, I know that everyone and their mother out there says that this is how sex can be used, but God says, here's how I want you to think about sex. And he's our guide who helps us walk the path rightly. And he's the one who convicts us to let us know when we've met up and he's the one who leads us back to Christ time and time and time again to live in the gospel of grace. And we're motivated by love. <laughs> oh. Again, I and you should not expect anyone who doesn't know God to live like those who do. But if you do know God, there's a claim on every aspect of your life. And that includes your sexuality. It becomes a new way to think of yourself in light of who God is and what he has done. So we know God. Now we need to know ourselves. Verse seven, look at what Paul says about us. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Holiness. You know what holiness makes me think of? All those months we spent back in the book of Leviticus. Now, I got more than a little bit of doubt when I first announced that we were going to do the book of Leviticus, okay? And uh, some of you didn't believe it was going to be a profitable time. It was good. It was profitable, okay? Because we learned about a holy God, and we learned what it means to be holy people. Now, when, when some of you hear holiness... You instantly think of like holier than thou and moral uprightness. But remember, remember, holiness, it includes a life of morality, but holiness means special, set apart, different, distinct. I used the analogy back then, but I'll just remind you of it now. You, you probably in your house, you have just your regular plates, your regular dishes that you use for everyday use. But maybe some of you have those like special plates that you only pull out of the cupboard for like Thanksgiving or those special holiday meals. Anybody have that sort of a situation, right? Maybe some of you, it's like, yeah, here's the tool chest and you know, my kids can use the screwdriver, they can use the hammer, but then here's these certain tools. They're like special. We don't use these tools every day of the week, Right? You don't, let your, you don't let your nine-year-old have access to the arc welder or whatever, right? Like it's, it's this special sort of thing. This is what God says about you. Holiness is not some rank that you achieve like Eagle Scout. It is a stamp that is put upon you when you repent of your sin and receive Jesus. You already have been called holy. So raise your hand if you are holy. Raise your hand up. It's you. You're special. You're a snowflake. You're special. No, I'm just kidding. But the idea here is that these holy people are just, it's going to look a little different. And you have to get used to it. 
Because there's a huge gravitational pull to say, oh, here's how we're going to live in our culture, in every culture. Big gravitational pull. But when we have been called holy, it means we're going to behave differently. We're going to live differently. Now, I really, I want to belabor this point for just a moment because for some of you, when you hear this idea of living a life of holiness, you may be tempted to drift into something like legalism. Legalism means we start adding all sorts of extra rules to the Bible. We start elevating man-made rules and saying that they're the same as God's rules. Friends, legalism is not holiness. And some of you react to that kind of legalism by, by going over into license and just saying, well, we're, we're, just, we're set free in Christ and every, you know, anything is good, anything's fine, and I don't need to worry about anything. I'm, I've been made holy, I'm good. Friends, I want you to hear there's this, there's this tension here. There's this tightrope to walk. Holy, holiness is neither legalism nor license. Holiness is, is, is this really difficult place of tension to live. So, by the way, it is not legalism to invite you to obey the clear commandments of God in the scripture. That is not legalism, okay? Obedience is not legalism. But legalism is saying, well, here's all these other things and here's these other rules and you need to do them just the same as what the Bible says. Let me give you an example, okay? Uh, What's the saying? When you're on thin ice, you might as well dance. Here we go, let's dance. Um, There were times in generations past Uh, particularly with the rise of television and movies and media, where it would not be uncommon to hear people say something to the effect of, Christians should never watch R-rated movies. Now, I've read the whole Bible a couple times. I can find nothing about movies, R-rated or otherwise, in the Bible. Now, what I can find is, hey, uh, to look upon a woman with lustful intent is sin. So I can clearly say, lust is a sin but I can't find a verse about what kind of movies you should or shouldn't watch. So then other people come over and say, you legalists over there putting all these extra rules in, I'm going to watch anything I want. I'm going to watch everything and anything I possibly want. Just complete license to say, I'm going to do anything. I would submit to you that living a life of holiness takes into consideration what is wise, what is good, what is beautiful, what helps you grow in Christ-likeness? So no, I can't say, oh, it's a sin to watch you know, movies that have explicit sexuality. I can't say that. But what I can say is, does that help you grow in holiness? Does that help you live a life that better reflects the goodness of God? If everyone, I mean, uh, I'll go one, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep going. Uh, <laughs> I was gonna make a really bad joke. Like, what are they gonna do, fire me? No, but it's a <laughs> terrible joke. <laughs> Uh, social media usage. Uh, I can't find any verses in the Bible anywhere about TikTok. Can't. Uh, I downloaded TikTok for a little while, and within a very short amount of time, I had to just in, like delete it fully, delete the account, delete the app, all of that. Do you know why? Because the algorithm saw that I was a, whatever, relatively middle-aged American male, and decided that what I wanted to see was videos of women in various states of undress dancing. Now, there's no verse in the Bible about should I or should I not have TikTok. 
But for me, I had a conviction that to live a life of holiness meant I, I have to just flee that. I have to flee that. So please hear me loud and clear on this. I do not want in any way, shape, or form to promote a, 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 a culture of legalism that says, you have to do these things and you must do these things. What I'm inviting you to do is look at what God has called you to in light of what Jesus has done for you. We're not going into legalism. We're not going into license. We're trying to say, Jesus, how can I best love you, honor you, serve you in a life of holiness? Which leads me to the third point, which is, this is serious business. This is serious business. Know the stakes. First Thessalonians 4, going back to verse 6, Paul says this. This means that one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner. So much of sexual immorality, this, this broad category of just misuse of God's good gift of sexuality is using somebody else for something you want. Again, we live in a culture that says, feels good, get it. Full expression to anything and everything you want. The Lord says that's taking advantage of somebody else. You're actually harming them. And the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses as we previously told and warned you. I'm not going to belabor this point, but this is a serious matter. Matters of sexuality become such a hot-button topic or such a sensitive thing to address because it's, it's so closely at the core of just who we are as human beings. And as such, the devastation that gets caused is just so serious. I know and love people dearly who have had their entire lives destroyed either by their own misuse of this good gift of God or by other people's. And I don't want to get into drawing some sort of one-to-one correlation, this happened because of that or whatever. All I know is that this verse says, the Lord is an avenger of these offenses, that God takes it really seriously. Which leads me to the fourth and final point. We got to know what to do. Okay, God's called us to this higher standard. I see the good news of the gospel. I'm motivated. Tell me what, how, how? For this is God's will for your sanctification. Going back to verse three. I know I'm kind of jumping around a little bit in this, but this is God's will for your sanctification that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you, here's the explanatory, here's the explanatory verse, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor. By the way, (laughs) there is a translation rabbit hole you could uh, go down that the, the, the verse control his own body. In the Greek, it's literally acquire his own vessel. And translators speculate on what exactly. I think it is the Pauline New Testament equivalent of keep it in your pants, uh, essentially. But either way, controlling his own body is a perfectly helpful substitute But I like this. We've already talked about holiness, this other word here, with honor. With honor. See, this is not just about self-control. Like, I'm just going to clamp down and mm, kind of this, you know, stoic-faced, ascetic, mean, I'm going to move to a K 
cave in the desert and just get rid of any and all earthly pleasures. No, this is about honor. This is about knowing who God made you to be. Lord, when I consider the, the, the work of your hands, what is man that you are mindful of us? You made humankind a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned us with glory and honor. Do you know the psalm? Do you know the psalm? You are an image bearer of God. You are not a mere animal. You are not the mere product of blind evolutionary chance. You're an image bearer of God. Do you know what the animals do? Whatever they want. You don't sit and talk with your dog about, you know, try to logic with it, right? They just kind of do it. It's like, hey, get off the guest, right? You know, like that kind of a thing, right? That's not us. We're image bearers. We've been created with honor. And so because of that and because of what God has done for us, we can learn how to live a self-controlled life. Friends, that's a far better motivation than just kind of raw willpower, You are an image bearer of God. Yes, you've stumbled. Yes, you've fallen. But God has saved us through the blood of Jesus. He's given us the Holy Spirit. And we are being day by day restored to that place of honor that God intended for us from the beginning of creation. Praise God. So I want to offer you a few thoughts in closing of how we can live out godly self-control. Okay? Five things. Finally. Finally. For real, though, finally. Number one, I want to encourage you to practice self-denial. So much of our cultural environment around sexuality is just do whatever you want, do whatever feels good. But what did Jesus teach? If anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. And you're like, well, what does that even mean? What does it mean to deny myself? I'll give, you, I'll give you one. Here's a really easy biblical spiritual practice, spiritual discipline, and it's the, di- the discipline of fasting. Um, there's a whole corollary sermon about the appetites of the body related to food, the appetites of the body related to sex. Maybe one of the most helpful practices you could enter into to help you control your body in this godly, honoring sort of way would be to fast. One day a week or one day a month or one week a year or find ways to practice self-denial, practice fasting. I mean, don't even get me started in just terms of how much food and drink and candy and just all of the, the delight that we have at a moment's notice. I can literally grab an app and just, I could have, I could have, I could have stir fry right now. I'm actually getting a little bit hungry. I, I want stir fry. Practicing self-denial is a really important way to say, Lord, I want you to help me grow in controlling my body in holiness and honor. Number two, more than just denial, actually trying difficult things, challenging yourself to do things or to try things that maybe you haven't done before. That could be spiritual practice. I've never, I've never tried to pray silently before, okay? Or even, honestly, sometimes just in, in practice. Like I've never really exercised a, a regimen before, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 talks about disciplining his body and bringing it under control. Maybe you need to try some challenging and difficult things. Push yourself a little bit. Number three, 
I want to encourage you to be wary of extremism. Godly self-control is not extremism. Again, Paul and other writers in the New Testament warn us against this extreme asceticism or, you know, you know, uh, a, a literal like whipping of the flesh or denying marriage or saying no to any sorts of pleasure. That is not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about extremism. We're not talking about legalism. Number four, we're talking about getting used to being holy. Sometimes it feels really weird to be holy. That's a weird way to say it, I know. But I mean it that way. Again, we live in a culture with such a strong gravitational pull. Such a strong gravitational pull. I mean, if any of you are parents, you've heard this from your kids. Well, but mom, everybody. I, I don't think we as adults really ever grow out of that. But God, everybody. And God says, hey, I've called you Holy. I've set you apart. You're just, it's going to be different. I know it's weird. I love having these conversations with my friend Rabbi Matt. And he talks about that with the Jewish people. Some of the practices, the food laws, things like that. Like, oh, we're just not going to eat these foods. Why? It's not a sin to eat a shrimp. No, but we're just different. God called us to be set apart and holy as a witness to who he is. And then lastly, number five, live in the gospel. This is always, always, always got to come back to the gospel. God is our king and creator. Jesus redeems us, forgives us, and heals us. And the spirit has been poured out into our hearts. So now we can learn how to live a life that's pleasing to God, not just in our sexuality, but in everything. And as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord, where we're going to gather around the, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, my prayer for each of us is that we will find forgiveness and healing for the wrongs we have done and the wrongs that have been done to us at the foot of the cross. I invite Pastor John to come. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to tell us when we're wrong, to correct us when we need to be corrected, but also to not leave us in our place of brokenness, but to bring your life and your love and your healing to us. God, I ask and I pray right now that as we come to the table to eat and to drink, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us and nourish us for the, the, the journey that is ahead, living in a world that just so often wants to pull us in a different direction or another. God, I ask and I pray that we would be strengthened to live as lights that shine brightly in a darkened world, not angry at the world, not expecting those who don't know God to live like those who do, but Lord, us being faithful as people of the gospel. It's in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.